Well, hey, good morning to you, Grace. It's great to see you this morning. And if you've been on vacation for a little bit or if you're visiting us for the first time, we are in the book of Daniel going this summer. And we're spending our time in this Old Testament book of Daniel. And the title for today is The Scale Doesn't Lie. The Scale Does Not Lie. I get home from work one day and I find this in our restroom. I look at this thing, I'm like, what is So I go down to Tanya and I say, what is this thing? And she says, it's a scale. And I'm like, we already have a scale. Why do we need another scale? I don't use the scale we already have. Why do we need another one? And she says, step on the scale that we have. So I step on the scale that we have, like 285. <laughs> and she says, step on the new scale. Step on the, step on the new scale. 165. I'm like, oh, now I know why you like the new scale. <laughs> and she said, yeah, every time that she would go to Kaiser, she would go to the gym, the scales there would have a different weight than what she got at home. So can scales lie? Yes, they can lie. So today we're talking about weight, unfortunately. Now, God did not record in scripture the ideal physical weight of people. And I think the reason that he didn't do that is because he doesn't care about our BMI one bit. <laughs> but did you know that God has a spiritual weight? God has a spiritual weight. And you're probably wondering, oh no, <laughs> I hope I'm not too heavy. But see, on God's scales, it's not about being too heavy. It's about being too light. And that's what we are talking about today in the book of Daniel. So would you turn in your Bibles to Daniel and chapter 5. Daniel and chapter 5. And while you're finding that, I just want to remind all the vacationers who are back from vacation uh, where we have been this summer. You remember in 605 BC, Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar rolls through the entire world. They, they crush Assyria, they crush Egypt, and they take over the entire known world, including Israel. And when Babylon takes you over as a nation, they do two things. They take your stuff and they take your people. And that's exactly what Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar did with Israel. As they rolled into Jerusalem, they took their stuff. They went into the temple, the temple where God is worshipped, and they took the, took the, the worshipping implements. And today they're called the vessels. The things in the temple that, that the Jews worship God with, Babylon took those back to Babylon and put in their temple instead to the many gods. And that was a way for Babylon to say, your God's a loser, ours is a winner. Yours God, your God can't help you, our God helped us. Every time you go to church, you're going to go in there and you're going to remember that your God couldn't help you because none of those things are there anymore. They're in our temple instead. But not only do they take your stuff, they also take your people. And so Nebuchadnezzar, as he would roll through the countryside, he would take the best and the brightest young adults, teenagers from that area, and he would ship them off to Babylon, to Babylon University, to brainwash them, to indoctrinate them. Be like us, think like us, do it like us. Here's the culture, here's the way that we operate, because they were going to be the assimilators, those teenagers, those young adults who were smart, 
who were attractive, who were good-looking, who were popular, were going to be the assimilators of the rest of Israel over time. And so that's exactly what happened to Israel. They took their stuff and they took their people. And taking their people was, and that had another benefit. It kept the uprisings from happening because if your little town causes an uprising, we're just going to send your teenagers back to you in a body bag. And so this was the method of Babylon for taking over uh, countries, and that's exactly what they did. And so four, we meet four people in this book, four young guys, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those are the main characters, although Daniel is the primary one here, probably because he wrote it. <laughs> and so he's the focus of this book. And these four guys, out of the thousands of people that were taken and taken back to to Babylon University, these four guys, they didn't, they didn't do, they didn't assimilate. They didn't do it like Babylon did it. They didn't think like Babylon. They remained faithful to God and God remained faithful to them because of that. And so God gave them some abilities, uh, some spiritual gifts that allowed Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, to see them in great light and put them in really high positions in the echelons of his kingdom. And so that's where we get to Daniel chapter 5 today is where we continue this story. In Daniel chapter 5 verse 1, a lot changes. Daniel chapter 5 verse 1, Belshazzar the king held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. A lot has changed. It's been 65 years now since 605 BC and Babylon rolled through the entire nation. It's been about 30 years since the last verse of the last chapter. Daniel is pushing 80 now. Okay, Who has been the king all four chapters of the book of Daniel so far? Who's been the king of Babylon? Nebuchadnezzar. Well, who's the king now? Belshazzar, not to be confused with Belshazzar, who is the Babylonian name of Daniel. This is a different person. This is Belshazzar. He is now king. Now, who's this Belshazzar? Because everybody knows, now you might not know, but everybody knows that Nabonidus was the last king of Babylon. Nabonidus was the last king of Babylon. That's what history books tell us. That's what, um, that's what uh, all the archaeology tells us, that Nabonidus was the last, all the historians from that time, Nabonidus is the last king of Babylon. Well, then who's Belshazzar? Well, Nabonidus, so Nebuchadnezzar has now passed. And now we have another king who is Nabonidus. And Nabonidus starts to learn, just as he's king, that there is an up-and-coming uh, power that is starting to take over kind of the corners of his world. It's the Medes and the Persians. They've combined forces, and they're starting to encroach upon the city center. And so Nabonidus decides that he's going to go on a work trip. <laughs> he's going to go down to Arabia and set up some commercial port, and while he's gone, he's going to put his son... Belshazzar in charge of Babylon. And so that's who Belshazzar, he is the son of the king. So he's not technically the king. Nabonidus is still alive, but Belshazzar is the one who's hanging back having to deal with all the issues while Nabonidus' dad is down in Arabia sitting back in a 
lazy boy chair on the beach with a little drink with an umbrella in it, taking Snapchat pictures of him with his sunburn, sending them back to his son saying, don't you wish you were here? And Belshazzar's like, I'm having to deal with this. And something else that you don't know is that these Medes and these Persians, these this entire army that's been encroaching upon the edges of Babylon is now camped just on the other side of the Santa Ana River, Euphrates, the other side of the Euphrates River. They're right at their doorstep. And so that's why there are a thousand nobles that have now come to Babylon, the city center. These nobles have run from all the little towns, all the places where they were nobles of, uh, and they have run to the mothership. They have run to Babylon, but they're not scared. Why would you be scared when in Babylon you have 80-foot-thick walls between you and the people on the outside? And so they're not scared. What are they doing? They're having a party. Giant party with these thousand nobles that have run from all the edges of the Babylonian empire have come to Babylon because the Medes and the Persians are now a rising power and they're having a a party. History books tell us that that Babylon had set aside 20 years worth of food in Babylon. The Euphrates River flowed right through the middle of the city, underneath the gates, right into the middle, so they could farm with that water forever. They, they had a clean water, food for the rest. They didn't, nobody had to leave Babylon. Nobody could take over Babylon. And so they're having this grand party, verse two. When Belshazzar tasted the wine at this party, He gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem. So the king and his nobles and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had had been brought out of the temple, the house of God, which was in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles and his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank the wine. And praise the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So having this giant party, a decadent party, an orgy unlike anything that these people had ever experienced. And they're getting drunk off of the finest wine. And they are drinking the wine out of the vessels, out of the implements that were taken out of the temple 65 years ago by Nebuchadnezzar. I don't even know if Belshazzar even had a clue where these things were from. The picture here is is a a spoiled brat kid who just grows up with all sorts of power, all sorts of money. And I don't think he really knows where any of it even comes from exactly. It's like those kids in high school whose parents bought them a brand new car on their 16th birthday, you know, and and you had a really big, you had a big problem with a little bit of jealousy on that one because you had no car to drive and their parents bought them a spoiled brat kids. You know, I went to a private school. And so spoiled brat kids, brand new car, 16th birthday. I'm driving no car to school. And so I think I begged my parents long enough. And so that they let me drive their little brown hatchback <laughs> to, <laughs> to school with them. And so that's the picture. Nabonidus is having this giant party, having no sense of what's happening around him at all. He just is happy with all the power that he has. All the while, this giant party, the Medes and the Persians are just on the other side of the Santa Ana River. You know, like where clay turns right, right there. That's where all they camped out. 
right there on the other side of the river. And what happens next at, at this party is one of the weirder things in the Bible. Uh, a lot of people have questions about the next two verses that we're going to read. And so I'm going to help, I'm going to answer the questions that you're going to have for me after this worship service is over, okay? My answer to most of the questions that you're going to have about the next two verses that we read is, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, all right? I have no idea. Let's read. Verse 5. In verse 5 it says, Suddenly, the fingers of a man's hand emerged, this is at the party, and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. Then the king's face grew pale, and his thoughts alarmed him, and his hip joints went slack, and his knees began knocking together. Now that's weird. And this is where we get the phrase, you know, the writing on the wall. This is where we get that phrase from. Now, am I naive enough to believe that this is an actual event in history? I am that naive. Do I believe that what we are reading here is some sort of metaphor for something else that's happening? No. Do I think that this is just the alcohol that's talking, this didn't really happen, it's just imagining their minds? No, I don't think that happened. A, a, a hand, a disembodied a hand starts to spray paint on the wall. And see, so you might wonder, well, what was he writing with? I don't know. <laughs> Whose hand was it? I don't know. Why were they doing that? I don't know. I, I don't know the answers for all the questions. Obviously, this was God in doing this. Why would he do it that way? I have no idea why he would do it like this. Mene, mene, tekil, uparsin. That's what is written there. Now, does Belshazzar know what any of this means? Well, look at verse 7. In verse 7, it says, The king, that's Belshazzar, called aloud to bring the conjurers, the Chaldeans, the diviners. The king spoke and said to the wise men of Babylon, Any man who can read this inscription and explain its interpretation to me, shall be clothed with purple and have a necklace of gold around his neck and have authority as third ruler in the kingdom. So does, does Belshazzar know what this inscription writing on the wall means? No. And so he calls all of his best guys, all the guys that were trained at Babylon University to come and tell him, and there's a prize. The prize for the guy that can tell him is third ruler in the kingdom. You might be, well, why not second ruler? Remember, he doesn't have second ruler to give away. His dad, Nabonidus, is technically still king, first ruler. He is second ruler because his dad left him in charge. And so the only thing that he can give away is third in command, third ruler of the kingdom. And so that's what he offers but, does, that, but does, does he know what these words mean? We say no based on this verse, but what about verse 6? Verse 6 that we just read says, The king's face grew pale, and his thoughts alarmed him, and his hip joints went slack, and his knees began knocking together. If he didn't know what this meant, why is he freaking out? 
If you didn't know it, this could have meant you won the lottery. This could have meant you got a better job than you have now. This could have meant something great. Why was he so scared of what was written on the wall? I think it's because he experienced what everyone else experiences and is described a little bit more clearly in the book of Romans. The book of Romans 1, verse 20, it says this, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what was made so that they are without excuse. Immediately, built inside of Belshazzar is the feeling of guilt. He knows that he has been living against God because even the creation of the world, this verse says, displays the power and the truth that God exists. Did you know the Bible even says that eternity is built within people's hearts, that the truth that there is a heaven, the truth that there is a hell, the truth that there is a God who oversees these things is built inside of people's hearts. And you knew that too, didn't you? Even before you were Christian, you knew it. You didn't want to live like it. You didn't want to agree to it. You wanted to have uh, arguments as an agnostic or as an atheist, but you knew because it was built inside of your heart that there was an eternity, that there was a heaven and there was a hell, and you are just like Belshazzar. He feels completely guilty. He knows he's having a giant orgy drunk party, and immediately he's convicted. He doesn't even know what it says, and he's immediately convicted. And so... Verse 10, the, the wise men, the, the, the ones that had been trained at Babylon University could not tell him what his writing on the wall meant. And so verse 10, the queen entered the banquet hall because of the words of the king and his nobles. Now, who's the queen? There's some discussion about who this queen is, but it's either the wife of Nebuchadnezzar, who's still alive, Nebuchadnezzar has passed, but his wife is still alive. Or it's his daughter, one or the other. And so the queen entered the banquet hall because of the words of the king and his nobles. The queen spoke and said, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts alarm you or your, or your face be pale. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is a spirit of the holy gods. Who's she talking about? Uh-huh. She knows about Daniel. That's why we know that this is a connection to Nebuchadnezzar. Um, Belshazzar, has no, he has no sense. He has no sense of even who... He, Daniel is prime minister of the entire nation right now, and he doesn't even know who's running the place. And so she says, hey, remember, there's this man in your kingdom who is a spirit, who, who is a spirit of the holy gods, and in the days of your father... Now, that's referring to not his father, not his dad, Nabonidus, but to, to Nebuchadnezzar. And so, not his direct father. So, like sometimes how, you know, Abraham is the father of all people. Well, he's not directly father. And just like we say, the, the founding fathers of our nation, not a direct father, but a male that it comes before you, basically. It says, uh, in the days of your father, illumination, insight, and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, 
your father the king, appointed him chief of the magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, and diviners. This was because of an extraordinary spirit, knowledge and insight, interpretation of dreams, explanation of enigmas, and solving of difficult problems um, were found in this Daniel. So let's stop right here just for a minute. A lot has been happening behind the scenes. You know, we've read a couple things where Daniel comes in and, and gives an interpretation. We had that dream of the giant uh, statue with the head of gold and and then it was the breast and arms of silver and the metals continued to decrease. You know, we've seen a, a few of those things from Daniel where Daniel would interpret a dream. But unbeknownst to you, as we are reading this book, the entire second half of the book of Daniel is all sorts of prophecy and all sorts of interpreting of dreams that Daniel has been doing all along the way in the middle of all of these things that have not been shown to you yet because we just haven't gotten to that part of our Bible. Remember, this book is split right in half. We have what is happening in the life of Daniel and Babylon, and then the second half of the book are all of the prophecies that Daniel has in interpreting dreams that were given to Nebuchadnezzar primarily in the back half of the book of Daniel. And so when when, when uh, the queen here is saying all these enigmas and all of these details, we've seen just a slim sliver of what, was, what actually had been uh, interpreted for Nebuchadnezzar. And so at the end of verse 12, whom the king named Belshazzar, remember Daniel was named Belshazzar, let Daniel now be summoned and he will declare its interpretation. Now, I don't know for sure if Nebuchadnezzar's wife ever became a believer, but I think she did. And if I was to guess when she put her faith in, in God, I would say that her belief happened right when her husband, Nebuchadnezzar, was struck with that mental illness from last week. Remember, as soon as his, his mental illness was happened, I think it all became clear to her, just like when seven years later, after that mental illness from last week, when Nebuchadnezzar's mind returned to him, the very first thing he did was believe in God. And so I, as soon as his mind returned to him, he believed, and I think she probably had seven years earlier. We don't know that for sure, but she obviously wants to bring Daniel back because of Daniel's influence in her own husband's life. And now I think she hopes that Belshazzar does the same thing that Nebuchadnezzar does, and that would be, of course, change his mind about God too. And so verse 13 then Daniel was brought in before the king, and the king spoke to him and said, Daniel, are you the Daniel who is one of the exiles from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? Now I have heard about you, that a spirit of the gods is in you, and that illumination, insight, and extraordinary wisdom have been found in you. Just now the wise men and the conjurers were brought in before me, that they might read the inscription and make its interpretation to me, but they could not declare the interpretation of the message. But I personally have heard about you, and you are able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems. Now, if you are able to read the inscription and make its interpretation known to me, do you find any irony in this? This guy is, is holding a goblet that was taken 65 years ago out of the temple that worshiped Daniel's God. He is drunk from the alcohol that is in that. And now he's begging Daniel to interpret the dream that only comes from that same God who they pillaged that temple. Isn't that kind of weird? 
he has no sense of even what he's doing or what's happening at all, this Belshazzar. And it says, will you, uh, and he says, if you make it known to me, you'll be clothed with purple and wear a necklace of gold around your neck and you'll have authority as a third ruler in, your king, in the kingdom. Now, third ruler is not a really big deal at all. <laughs> He's already been prime minister for almost his whole life. And being third ruler of a nation that's about to get taken over by the Medes and the Persians is not a really safe place to be anyway. And so Daniel's not real interested in that. He tells the king, I'm not really interested in that, but I will interpret this dream or this uh, message on the wall. Remember, this is still all about that message that's still there on the wall. Was it in Sharpie? Was it, it wasn't smoke because it was still there. What did he write with? I don't know what he wrote with. Verse 18, he began, Daniel begins to tell Belshazzar the answer to his question. O king, the most high God granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your father. Because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language feared and trembled before him. Whomever Nebuchadnezzar wished, he killed, and whoever he wished, he spared alive. And whomever Nebuchadnezzar wished, he elevated, and whomever he wished, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up, and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly, he was deposed from his royal throne, and his glory was taken away from him. He was also driven away from mankind, and his heart was made like that of the beasts, and his dwelling place with that of the wild donkeys, and he was giving grass to eat like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he recognized that the Most High God is ruler over the realm of mankind, and that he sets over it whomever he wishes. Who is Daniel talking about here? Nebuchadnezzar. He is giving the the abbreviated version of what we studied the last two weeks. This is Nebuchadnezzar's biography. Well, now it's his biography as told by Daniel. This is his testimony. Now, this doesn't come as a huge surprise to, um, to Belshazzar because Belshazzar, he was 47 years old when the king went crazy. He was 47, so he was an adult man when that happened. And so seven years later, he was 54 when Nebuchadnezzar saw the light, when God removed that mental illness from him, and Nebuchadnezzar believed in God. So all this wasn't necessarily foreign to Belshazzar, but Belshazzar certainly didn't pay attention to it. Look at verse 22. In verse 22, it says, Yet you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all of this. Well, yeah, he knew all of it. That wasn't a surprise. He knew all of it. If, if Belshazzar was going to have a life verse, this would be Belshazzar's life verse. Are you familiar with life verses? Do you know that idea? The idea of a life verse is, you know, someone has one verse that really matters to them a lot, that kind of encapsulates their, their uh, love for Jesus or the life experiences as, as they relate to uh, God and Jesus. Now, I don't, have, I don't have a life verse. Sorry to disappoint you. It seems like every time I read the Bible in the morning, there's like another one that I could say, oh, that, I could identify with that one too. So I guess I have like 365 life verses, I suppose. But this would be Belshazzar's life verse here. Uh, he was not humble. Really, just like Nebuchadnezzar was at the beginning of his life, um, Belshazzar was not humble either. And so look at verse 
23, Daniel's even more clear description of Belshazzar. But you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought the vessels of his house before you. Now Daniel's describing to him exactly the the ironic situation that he's in where he's begging for advice from a person who worships the God whose vessels you are drinking alcohol out of to get drunk at this giant orgy. He's describing where this came from. The vessels of the house before you and you and your nobles, your wives, your concubines have been drinking wine from them and you have praised the gods of silver and of gold, and of bronze, and iron, and wood, and stone. See, the the Babylonians worshipped the gods, all sorts of gods. There's a god of wood, there's a god of stone, you know, just a god of every kind of thing that's out there. And Daniel concludes, which those gods, which they do not see, hear, or understand, but the god whose hands whose hand are your life breath and all your ways you have not glorified. The God that gave you the oxygen to breathe right now while we're arguing about who God is, you have not included him at all. And Daniel's just saying, you owe God your kingdom. That your kingdom comes from God. Everything that you have, Belshazzar, comes from God. It's the same communication that Daniel had with Nebuchadnezzar not too long ago. This all comes from God. Your kingdom comes from God. This power comes from God. Your position comes from God. Your social contacts come from God. The bank account that you have comes from God. The car that you have comes from God. The kids that you have are not your own. They come from God. The, the skills that you have at work to be successful, they are not yours. They come from God. The, the physical abilities that you have to be really good in sports, those aren't yours. Those come from God. You owe it to God. God is the one who gave you all of those things, Belshazzar. And so Daniel finally is kind of creating this, this um, leading up. He's kind of running to jump off the ramp of what was written on the wall. And so we get to it in verse 25. In verse 25, here's the interpretation. Now, this is the inscription that was written out. Mene, mene, tekil, uparsin. This is the interpretation of the message. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. Tekil, you have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians. That's what it means. Mene, he uses that word twice. Mene, mene. Uh, it, it's, it, the word there is, is counted. Uh, God has assigned a number to you. God has assigned a number, a number of your spiritual weight, of your leadership abilities. God has assigned a number to it, and it's finished, meaning you can't change it, you can't undo it, you can't go back and do a retest. God has assigned, you can't go back and gain weight, you can't go and eat more McDonald's to be heavier. God has assigned a weight to you, a number to your spiritual weight. Mene, mene, counted, counted. And what was counted? Well, it says here, Tequil. Tequil means you have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. This word has kind of two meanings, and it's in that description that you've been weighed and you're too light. You've been weighed. God has given a number to you. It's too late. You can't undo it. You've been weighed and you're too light. 
Now, I'm sure that you wish you had a scale that had tequila written on it, you know. You step on it, and you're too, you're too light. And Belshazzar was experiencing what every kid experiences when they go to a, an amusement park. You know when you go to an amusement park, there's like the ride height line, you know, if you have kids, you know what I mean about the ride height line. You know about the, that you have to be this high to ride this roller coaster. And you don't have to be any around the family. You can just look at a distance to see how it's going. You can be somewhere in the, in the line and you can look up, you know, you can look up to see and the roller coaster comes in and they pull out the family with the little kid in it. And you're like, oh no, it's going to be bad. And they pull that little girl over to the line and the girl just stands up as tall as she can because she wants to get to that line. And or you don't even have to hear a thing. You can just watch. And if she starts crying too short. Didn't measure out. If she gets excited, that means she's tall enough. She's big enough. And that's exactly what's happening here with Belshazzar. He's being weighed. He's, he, he's going up to the line. And I know that you wish that you had a scale that told you that you were too light, but you do not wish that with God when he's counting your spiritual weight. You don't wish that at all, do you? Now, Belshazzar, in the world's perspective, had all the weight that he needed. When he stepped on that world scale, he had the power, he had the influence, he had the social, he had the weight. But then he stepped on God's scale and he was found too light. That scale lied to him. It depends on what scale you're weighing yourself on. Now, Technically, everyone is too light on God's scales, aren't they? Technically, nobody can get on God's scales on their own and weigh enough in front of God. And that's what a Christian is, is someone who realizes that they're too light. That's why God had to send Jesus to earth, Jesus being God in heaven, second person of the Trinity, God sends him to earth because there's a problem. It's sin. Sin is what makes people too light. The Bible says that sin separates people from God for all of eternity in a place called hell. Sin is what makes people spiritually light. That's what Belshazzar was dealing with here. He was sinning and he felt guilty. He already knew that he was guilty and he had not done anything about that. But God doesn't want people to go to hell. God wants people to go to heaven, so he sends his son, Jesus, second person of the Trinity, to planet Earth. The Christmas day was a real thing when Jesus was born. And then he lives a perfect life, never sins one time. When I say sin, I just mean doing things you know you shouldn't do. That's all sin is. Never sinned one time. I mean, you've sinned. I've sinned. Jesus never did. He gets to the cross. They, he gets put on a cross. He dies on a cross never having sinned. He wasn't dying for his own sin. He was dying for my sin. He was dying for your sin. Three days later, he rises from the grave, proving that he is God. He, God's the only one that can do that. And he is in, Jesus is in heaven today. And all a, a Christian is, is someone who's not heavy enough to put God's scales in balance, a Christian is simply someone who's put their faith in Jesus and as soon as they get on the, the scale, Jesus steps on with them. He is their savior. He is the one that has rescued them from your sins. And God is, Jesus is the only one that can wash away or take away the sins that make you too spiritually light. And so as you step on that scale, 
then all of a sudden Jesus steps on with you and that is the only spiritual weight that a, that a person ever has. But of course, Belshazzar did not have that kind of spiritual weight. He was found to be too light. And so that last word, uparsin, uh, uparsin is the plural of this word in verse 28, Perez. Your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians. Remember that giant statue of Nebuchadnezzar's dream long ago, like 63 years ago, something like that? Remember that one? A giant, multi-metaled, and the head was a head of gold. That was Nebuchadnezzar. But we learned all the way back then that Babylon was going to end someday. And it was going to be the, the two arms, the Medes and the Persians that had unified together. And now Daniel says, you lost your kingdom because you were too light on God's scales. So verse 29. Then Belshazzar gave orders and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a necklace of gold around his neck and issued a proclamation concerning him that he now had authority as the third ruler of the kingdom, and Daniel just rolls his eyes because that night, verse 30, that same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. So Darius the Mede, if you're doing the math, that's the Mede of Persians and Medes, Darius the Mede received the kingdom about the age of 62. How in the world could that happen? This is impossible. How could Babylon, 80 foot thick walls, 20 years worth of food, had a river running right through it, there was no way that they could ever be overtaken, so much so they were having a party with the Medes and the Persians camp just on the other side of the Santa Ana River, and how could this ever happen? How could it happen? Well, we have Nabonidus, not Nabonidus, we have Herodotus. He is a Greek historian who was born 60 years after this happened. And he took all the accounts of the people who were there and wrote down what happened on this night. How could the Medes and the Persians physically, I mean, yeah, I mean, we know that God was involved, but how did this actually happen? How could the Medes and the Persians who were camped out on the other side of the river, how could they get through the 80-foot thick walls? How could they stand up against the military of the, of, the, of the strongest military in the world? How could they do it? Well, Herodotus tells us how. And so I brought you some of his writing here so you can see how it actually happened. So there's Cyrus the Great, okay? Cyrus the Great placed a portion of his army, so this is the army that's camped out on the other side of the river, placed a portion of his army at the point where the river, that's the river that flowed right through, he's kind of upstream a little bit of the Euphrates River, uh, where the river enters the city, and another body of his army at the back 
of the place where it issues forth, with orders to march into town by the bed of the stream. As soon as the water became shallow enough, he then dug the basin for the river, where he turned the Euphrates by a canal into the basin. The river sank so much sank to such an extent that the natural bed of the stream became fordable. Do you, are you seeing what's happened? They're camped out upstream and they create a, the word here is a canal, or they divert the water into a dry lake bed. And so the river that's flowing through Babylon, the city, begins to go down. There's not as much water in the river anymore. He continues. They entered the stream, the military entered the stream, which had now sunk to such a, to, as to reach midway up a man's thigh. So now the water is only this high flowing through Babylon and thus got into town. They walked right into Babylon, right under the 80 foot thick walls. Well, how could they do it? Had the Babylonians noticed the danger, they would have never allowed the Persians to enter the city, but would have destroyed them utterly and would so have caused the enemy as it were in a trap. If the Babylonians would have been a painted, they would have just been, you know, ducks in a barrel, boom, 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 as they came through underneath that wall. But as it was, the Persians came up upon them by surprise and so took the city. Why was it a surprise? Where was everybody while this was happening? Partying. That's where everybody was. They were all partying. And then there's this writing on the wall and they're all distracted by the writing of the wall while they're drunk. It's amazing how he, th- this is extra biblical or, or, or outside of scripture, what we're reading here okay, from Herodotus. It's amazing how history and archaeology and scripture all just fit seamlessly together because it's all true. It's, it's all correct. It's all accurate. And so what we read in scripture fits exactly with hap- what happened in history. You can go on to any website about Cyrus and the overtaking of Babylon, and this is what it will tell you. Even Wikipedia, by the way. And you know if it's on Wikipedia, it has to be true. (laughs) Herodotus isn't done yet. This is what it says, owing to the vast size of the place, the vast size of Babylon, the inhabitants of the central parts, meaning the the city, city center where the party was going on, the inhabitants of the city parts, as the residents at Babylon, Babylon declare, meaning he's taking the, the, he's writing down the words of the people who are in Babylon. The inhabitants of the central parts, long after the outer portions of the town were taken, knew nothing of what had chanced, but as they were engaged in a festival, continued dancing and reveling until they learnt about the capture. Such then were the circumstances of the first taking of Babylon. They came in and they took over the entire city and still the partiers were so drunk they didn't even know what was happening until finally they came to. And so the Babylonians chronicle this mark on the exact date of October 13th, 539 BC. That was the date when it all went down. Belshazzar had stepped on the Babylonian scale, and he weighed enough on the Babylonian scale. 
He had, he had the weight. He had the power. He had the strength. He had the influence. He had the cultural connections. He had the bank account. He had the, he had the bloodline. He had it all. But then he stepped on the, the scales of God. And when he got on that scale, he realized that that scale had lied to him. He thought he had it all, but this new scale said that he was focused on himself. He was confident in his ability that it was all about him and it was not about God at all. And I bet you're wondering something about you and yourself. I bet you're wondering, I hope I weigh enough. I hope I weigh enough on, on this one. Well, see, that's an important thing to, to know. If God were to weigh you today, if we were going to have everyone, we could put one of our cameras on this thing, everyone come up and step on here, and we could all look at your weight. If God was going to weigh you today, would you weigh enough? Would you weigh enough? If you've never put your faith and your trust in Jesus as your savior, the, the one that can take away your sins, then you already see, not in yourself, but you see in the life of someone else that you will not weigh enough. And that concerned Daniel a lot. And he told him, and that concerns me too. Maybe you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus. But today you've now heard about someone else. You're like looking in a mirror. There's someone else who has not weighed enough to. And unless Jesus steps on that scale with you, it's the same fate. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. That's eternal separation from God in a place called hell. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's the message of Scripture. It's woven into every book. You can see it's even woven into every chapter that there is a rescuer, there is a redeemer from our own fate of sin, of doing things that we know we shouldn't do. You know you're doing stuff you shouldn't do. It's built inside of you. I don't have to argue with you about is there a God or you know, you're doing wrong things. It's already built inside of your heart. And now you know the, the rest of the story. You know the, the truth the way to be rescued from that is by putting your faith and your trust in Jesus. And if you've never done that, today could be the day that, you'd, that, you would, uh, that you could do that or at least consider it before God. So I'm gonna give you the opportunity. I'm gonna ask all of you, would you be willing to bow your heads and close your eyes for just a minute today? It creates a little separation between you and the person next to you for just a minute. If you've never considered Jesus as your savior, if you've never changed your mind about who Jesus is, being the savior of the world, today could be the day where you do that. Nebuchadnezzar changed his mind and you could change your mind too. Today could be the day where you change your mind about who Jesus is, that he would be your savior. And here's what you would say to God. You, you don't need to raise your hand. You don't need to walk anywhere. God already knows your heart. He already knows what's on your mind. And so this talking to God is something that happens in your heart, happens in your mind. You don't have to say anything out loud. But here's what you could say to God. You could say, God, I know that I've sinned. I know that I have done things that I shouldn't have done and I felt guilty for a long time, but I've just suppressed it. But I know that that separates me from you for all of eternity. And I know that I need a savior to rescue me. I know that I'm spiritually too light. 
And so I believe what that pastor said about who Jesus is. I believe that Jesus is God. I believe that he came to earth and lived a perfect life. And I believe that when he died on the cross, he wasn't dying for his sin. He didn't have any. He was perfect. I believe that he was dying for my sin. And I believe that three days later, he did rise from the grave in the ultimate proof that he is God. And I believe that Jesus is in heaven today listening to this prayer. I need Jesus to be my savior. I need him to step on the spiritual scales with me. And so I put my faith and my trust and my belief in this Jesus, in this savior. I change my mind about who he is, put my eternity into his hands. And if your head's still bowed and your eyes still closed, the immediate promise is the third person of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit, now comes and lives inside of you and will help you live a life that's honoring to him. And God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the clarity and the truth that it brings. And I thank you for bringing something that happened so long ago to be so clear for us. And we thank you for standing on the scales, providing someone to stand on the scales for us so that we have the hope of eternity with you. And for that, we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.